Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, my name is Dimitar and you're listening to the Martin Centre podcast for technology, digital society and European policy. We live in interesting times. Is this a blessing or a curse? I'm not sure. But the fact is that technology has impacted our lives so much that it's currently shaping politics, economy, and let's be honest, it's shaping us. In our podcast series, we invite experts from public institutions, industries, and academia, and we talk about technology and policy specifically from a European angle. What happens when Brussels meets Silicon Valley? Is Europe becoming a dwarf or a leader when it comes to innovation? Is European regulation actually killing the internet? This is Brussels Bytes. I'm really happy to be joined today by Paul Nimitz. Mr. Nimitz is a principal advisor of the Director General of Digital Justice of the European Commission. Previously at the Commission, he has been responsible for leading work on the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, and the EU-US Privacy Shield. A lawyer by trade, Paul Nimitz is also a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges and publishes papers extensively on European Union law. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dimitar. Uh, your work as a principal advisor in the Commission currently involves dealing with technology and potential governmental response. Tell us a bit more about your everyday work. Well, right now it's uh, mostly a work of reflection, uh, namely on the question, what is the Commission going to do in the next mandate? But in a good public administration, people think ahead and they develop a number of concepts and options of what could be done so that they have some material to propose to the next college. And that's what I'm doing in the area of democracy, technology, and the rule of law. One of uh, the sub-subjects is the question, what are we going to do about artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. Is there a need to act beyond ethical rules? Do we need new laws? That is one of the questions. Another issue which I'm looking right now is, uh, at is the question of what we could be doing to strengthen the fourth estate, journalism, uh, in Europe. Um, I would like to refer to one of your um, recent papers. You wrote about constitutional democracy and indeed AI and technology. There's a, there's a very big question up in the air last couple of years. Are liberal democracies vigorous enough to withstand the impact of technology, big data and AI on our societies? One might argue that European constitution, constitutions and European institutions, which have been developed in the 19th and 20th century, were not really designed for, let's say, behavioral targeting, online disinformation or algorithms. Well, I would say that uh, the speed of development uh, of uh, different decision-making systems and uh, also the speed of decision-making and also the speed of innovation is, of course, completely different. So technological um, development together with business models uh, move very fast. They're very strong incentive for making money. Uh, on the other hand, um, democracy 
needs time. It needs deliberation. It needs uh, the building of majorities to come to conclusions. So I think uh, from that point of view, there's really nothing new. Um, what is new is that there is increasingly a discourse which pretends that technology can actually solve political problems. And I think um, with this discourse uh, we have to be uh, careful, but I don't think that generally speaking, as you said, it, uh, democracies need to withstand new technologies. Um, I think uh, democracies and free liberal economic systems thrive on technology and freedom of individuals traditionally goes hand in hand with innovation, both in terms of political innovation, but also business innovation. And I think we all together have to work on maintaining this model of growth and um, a good life for everybody mm -hmm. to uh, combine uh, with democratic freedoms and the rule of law. And we have to be honest that this model is also being questioned um, by regimes like China or what we see in Poland or Hungary, all countries where we have doubts about democracy to a different degree and doubts on the rule of law, but the economic figures are good. Mm. So I think we also have to be um, innovative in developing a new discourse on why democracy, why, of, why rule of law is actually better for people. And so we also have to go back into the philosophy of enlightenment and questions of individual freedom and find other arguments than just economic arguments for our way of life. You just mentioned the, the business model of, um, of big companies. Is, is there a clash between Silicon Valley's approach, approach towards innovation? Um, again, referring to one of your papers, you, you referred to the Californian ideology, so to speak. Can you tell us what is this Californian ideology? Well, let me first uh, say on the clash. Um, I don't think there is a clash uh, between Silicon Valley as such and uh, our uh, democracies. But of course, the innovation model of Silicon Valley is very different from the classic industrial innovation model. Silicon Valley, if you take it as a symbolic term for digital innovation, um, works on the basis of the minimal viable option of a business going to market. And you can do that in digital because every day in digital, after you've gone to the market with a minimal viable option, you optimize. You do A-B testing with your clients and you see what works, what doesn't work. And so you can basically develop the digital business model while you're already selling. That's, of course, very different from, you know, let's take uh, the example of a Rolls-Royce or a Mercedes where before you go to market, you have to invest billions to come out with the perfect car. Because once the car is on the market, you want it to roll perfectly and feel great. So we have very different business models in digital um, and very different innovation models in, dif in digital and in the classic industries. Now, is there a clash between Silicon Valley and our democracies? I think there we have to differentiate. We have to differentiate between business models 
and the type of technology we are talking about. I will now not go through all mm, the different companies, but I would say it is not good enough to say it's Silicon Valley or for that matter, it's the California ideology. We have to look at the business model. So last remark, what is the California ideology? Um, this is, of course, a long story and more uh, for sociologists and political scientists, but if you read American literature about it, it goes back to the 60s, to the time when, supposedly, when I was four years old <laughs> in 1966, <laughs> yeah, when supposedly the IBM mainframe controlled everything and in America, youth was turning away from government because of the Vietnam War and mm. the youth movement split into two fractions, also model I'm simplifying now. One was the groups which really politicized and marched on Washington, the peace movement, and so on. And the others were those who said, we don't want to have to do anything with this centralistic, undemocratic power of Washington, politically speaking, but also of the mainframe of this technology. We go to the desert and build our own life in California. And so it's a great start. It's a great narrative of freedom. And in this followed uh, John Perry Barlow with his declaration of the independence of cyberspace, where he said, governments have nothing to say here on cyberspace. If government thinks we have a problem, we will solve it ourselves. We don't need laws. We don't need democracy. You have no you state. Governments and parliaments have no legitimacy here. We do this all ourselves. So the, the, the Californian techie is basically a mix between the Woodstock hippie and the corporate uh, UP. Well, they were not yuppies at the time. They were really inspired by the idea that they want to give this technology in the hands of individuals and, you know, do good things and give new empowerment and, and kind of a tech democracy. Mm. And uh, But we, we, with no governmental oversight or limited governmental oversight. No, 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 no. no. Uh, John Perry Barlow, if you read that declaration, that's now already 30 uh, years later in, mm. the, in the 90s. Uh, you know, read out at the World Economic Forum at the time, government has no, no role to play here. We deal with this ourselves. And the symbol of the fact that this still has a meaning and resonates with people until today is the fact that the very important lobby organization, or I would say civil society organization, namely the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, still refuses to have an office in Washington. They operate from California. So um, this is the start. And now we jump to today. And um, uh, these uh, corporations, many of which started like this, are now the most powerful companies on the stock exchange. They're all in the top 10 list of the American stock exchange. They have become extremely influential in politics, extremely rich. They are all and making our lives better, some would say. Absolutely making our lives better. They, they all have become rich because they offer services which mm. people want. But we have learned, and I think they have learned too, and maybe we'll, we'll speak a little bit about the recent utterings and in particular the article in the Washington Post by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. They have learned also that they cannot stand against democracy, but they have to stand with democracy. And I think there's a learning process which is now taking place where more and more these companies also accept, again, the primacy of democracy and politics um, over technology and business. And I think that is what the struggle today is about. 
And here comes the one million dollar, one million euro question. How do we design technology neutral regulation? How we, we, we make it as such as we don't discriminate and we don't hamper innovation. Absolutely. And we, and we don't drive business away from Europe. Yes. Let's be honest. So the first uh, thing is uh, that it's very positive that you introduce the term of technology neutral uh, uh, legislation because this term already helps us to dispel a huge misunderstanding, which is the misunderstanding that the law has to change as fast as the business models and the codes change, and that in the law we need update 01, 02, 03 every four weeks, like we get it in the programs on our iPhone. And the, the uh, let's say the technological view of the world, which is becoming very dominant, is exactly this claim that democracy cannot cope because democracy cannot deliver these fast updates, which according to this engineering view of the world would supposedly be necessary. And the answer to this is that we don't need these updates if we make good laws. And what are good laws in the age of technology moving so fast and artificial intelligence um, becoming pervasive like electricity? Good laws are laws which are technology neutral. What does that mean? It means these laws do not mention the buzzwords of the day, which are fashionable, often created for marketing, but they are spelling out concepts which can evolve with technology and with business models and which have a different meaning today than they have tomorrow when the technology has evolved. We make laws for human beings who can think themselves. And therefore, we can write laws in a technological neutral way, in an open way, using the open texture of language, so that wise judges can interpret the law in a different way depending on how the world has evolved. And so I would say, you know, that is the learning which we have to bring into the technology scene, that the best laws are our constitutions, which have held, in some cases, more than 100 years. They are the best laws because they evolve in what they really mean. And I think we have to reject a view which wants to impose on democracy the functioning model of engineering and coding. You say laws, and I'll refer you back to artificial intelligence, which we, we spoke about um, just, uh, just a bit. Recently, the Commission published its guidelines, its ethical guidelines on artificial intelligence. No laws were produced, no regulations, no directives. Um, and the Commission set out its specific, ambitious ethical framework, which should be followed. Is ethics enough when you talk about artificial intelligence? How can we impose ethics? How, how can we keep companies and individuals accountable with ethics? Yes. Well, that's, uh, uh, of course, a big debate. Let me say, first of all, that the Commission is, uh, uh, like any other big organization, of course, a learning organization. And in approaching any new subject, we need time for discourse and for learning. And I think it's absolutely okay uh, to start the learning with the question, what should we do? That's the ethical question. And not to jump too fast into making hard laws which mm. are binding and enforceable, especially you know, if, you, if the subject still needs to be defined. And I think we are in such a learning phase right now. But in the history of law, 
we have always regulated all technologies and all business models by law, with one exception, that's the Internet. There, uh, the law has not been very prominent, but in the last mandate, the Commission has actually proposed and the Council and Parliament have passed quite a number of laws uh, touching on the Internet, and not only GDPR, if you think of net neutrality, if you think of copyright and so on. So I don't think um, that anybody has made a convincing case by now that uh, in the future for AI or other new technologies we have to, by principle, move away from law and leave it all you know, to ethics, which cannot be enforced and which doesn't have dem democratic legitimacy. You know? mm. I mean, we're, where's the parliament in all this? So what the Commission is doing right now, we are in a finding process and we will try out and see how these rules work, whether they are adopted. But you can already see that people like Mark Zuckerberg, when they say, now we need laws. In his big article on the 30th of March in the Washington Post, he said, we need laws on privacy, on data portability, on content regulation. Why does he say this? He says it for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is level playing field. If you leave it to business actors to voluntarily subscribe here and there, how can you ensure a level playing field in the world or for that matter in Europe? How can you guarantee citizens that the good things which you produce in ethics catalogs are actually benefiting them if it is a completely voluntary matter if companies sign up or not? So I think we will have to work on those questions and have to find answers, and we, if we can't find answers, we must go back to the traditional way, which is the way of democratic lawmaking. I would also say one thing, we have to see this whole debate about technology regulation and technology ethics in the bigger picture of living democracy. If we say we have a democracy problem in Europe in terms of people participating in the election, we want people to vote, in terms of some governments in some member states cutting corners on democracy and the rule of law, then at the same time we cannot develop and preach methodologies in Brussels mm. which actually cut out democratic process. So I'm looking forward to a very lively um, debate uh, in the next mandate and um, I'm sure, you know, depending on the outcome of the elections, there will be many in the European Parliament who will say, what's our role in this? This is a podcast recording and we're not live, but I'm just wondering if uh, we were live or we had phone calls or we have live comments and, and, and tweets, whether we would have specific questions. First one pop, pop, pop pops to mind. Okay, this is typical Brussels approach to, to artificial intelligence, to technology. This is going to make Europe even less competitive. Firm rigid regulation is going to drive away businesses and we're going to lose out to China. What's your response to that? Well, I would say this debate, we already had it in the 90s and the 80s and the beginning of 2000 on environmental laws. Mm. And uh, so the discourse that law are no good for business is a classic neoliberal discourse. Has it been right? Mm, I doubt it. I mean, if you look at the greening of GE, uh, which is just a, uh, a phrase symbolizing that actually, you know, becoming ecological has been made a world trend by European legislation. Um, green legislation and 
the principle of precaution on environmental matters has been a huge success for Europe. If you look at the industries today of uh, um, uh, electricity production, wind, uh, sun energy, if you look at uh, green cars mm. and, and so on, uh, if you look at resource efficient production, you know, it took some convincing, but I think many businesses have understood that being ecological is also resource efficient and therefore cheaper production if you lose, use less uh, resources. So we have gone through this experience of such a debate already, which is the debate between risk of regulation in the public interest on the one hand and innovation on the other hand. It's, it was the debate on environmental law and we have it again and I would think the first thing we need to do is we have to learn from what we have already been through and then we have to be reasonable of course. Uh, I would fully agree with you that going too far and blindly just making laws for making laws, that's not the purpose. But the purpose is to ensure sustainability and sustainability means also acceptability by people and means also functioning democracy. It's not only a term of uh, social and, and environmental sustainability, but it is the sustainability of our societal model. And um, there I think, um, honestly, uh, uh, we have to apply a, a good methodology if we ask the question, should we make laws? And this methodology has, has to be rigorous. Uh, you know, we have to have a problem which needs to be solved, a problem of the common good. And we have to ask the question, is this problem not already addressed in other existing laws? For example, GDPR solves a lot of problems already on AI. But, but GDPR was attacked exactly on these grounds a couple of years ago, saying this is going to censor the, the internet, this is going to make small firms suffer close to 4,000 amendments in, in Parliament, rigorous lobbying, and now two years later, actually many firms, many companies are saying, let's adopt this model in the US. Many other countries are saying, yes, this is a great template, template for, for, for the future. So actually, it turns out that Europe did a good job. Well, I would say it was a historical consolation with Vice President Reading of the EPP uh, leading this project on the one hand and then the Green Rapporteur in the Parliament, Jan Albrecht, and then of course the Snowden revelations which were really a wake-up call for everybody about the potential of this technology in the hand of states. It's not uh, data protection rules are not only for companies, they're also for governments. Um, it was a historical uh, good uh, constellation and yes, I do remember uh, the expertise which was put on the table by the American Chamber of Commerce which said that if we adopt GDPR we will have 5% less <laughs> GDP in Europe. <laughs> but let's also be clear, you know, whenever laws have been made in Brussels which business doesn't like, such a storm has broken laws loose. That was the case in terms of chemical regulation on REACH, it was when we made uh, the directive which said money transfers between member states should not cost more bank transfers than domestic bank uh, transfers. <laughs> you know, there were people saying the banks will go bust, you know. So I think um, if you are in the policy making business, you have to listen to this carefully. Um, but you also have to be relaxed about uh, often um, inflated uh, claims. Is everything great now about GDPR? I wouldn't say so, but I would say uh, and join you in this assessment that it's actually amazing to see 
how business models are now being built around this law uh, in Europe and how in America, uh, California is the first state which mm. has moved forward and others are now debating to move forward. It shows uh, uh, that also in America, people, individuals, want control over what's happening with their data. And uh, so in the great democracy of America, we will see uh, something which is a catching up movement. And I find that quite comforting. So we can, we can sum up that Europe actually shows that it can lead the way. It can influence even American policy. And European regulation can be used as a global template. Um, with this happy note, I would like to thank you for, for our conversation. I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, follow the Martin Center on Twitter. Check out our SoundCloud page in which you can also uh, listen to our other podcasts. And stay tuned to Brussels Bytes. That was today's episode of Brussels Bytes. Follow us on SoundCloud for more.